This is God's word, so give it all due attention. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Thanks, Baxter. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing in our time in the word. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is dear to our hearts, and we pray, Lord, that you would ever make it dearer to us. Lord, even this morning, I pray that you would cast our eyes upon our Savior once more, that we might be changed even as we look forward to the day of his coming. I pray all, the name, all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I remember growing up and, uh, and watching movies and television shows and reading books. And, you know, I love the first part of movies and books and television shows. You know, everything's going well. Um, we watch a lot of uh, Planes, Fire, and Rescue in our house. It's a Disney movie. And uh, it, it opens up with um, Dusty Crophopper, the, the plane, the main protagonist, you know, flying around and winning all these races. And then he's flying with his best friend, Skipper, a Corsair from World War II. And the music's playing. And you just like, this is a great movie. And then all of a sudden, um, music changes. And he starts falling out of the sky. And his uh, gear reduction box, I've seen it that many times, uh, has broken and and the rest of the story, the rest of the movie is more or less about how he overcomes this conflict, this issue that he has faced. What I didn't realize as a kid, I always um, really cringed whenever conflict came into a, a show or movie thinking they've ruined another good movie, right? What I failed to realize is that every good movie, every good story uh, must have conflict in it. Otherwise, it's, it's just no good. We, we, we see this in the stories we tell our kids. We, tell, we see this in the stories we tell each other, uh, hunting stories that get bigger and bigger each year. There's always some kink, there's always some problem, something that goes wrong that must be fixed. Indeed, we might be able to say that every story is really the story of how some conflict is overcome. And if it is overcome... We certainly see this in, in this true story of Scripture as well. 
Sometimes we use that word story as if it is always false or fictional, but the true story of Scripture is is very much similar. You have the first two chapters of Genesis where everything is right. There's, There's peace between Adam and Eve. There's peace between Adam and Eve and the world, and there's peace between Adam and Eve and God. Everything is great. Then Genesis 3 happens, and and everything is wrong. This world is thrown upside down into turmoil, into rebellion against God. And Indeed, the rest of Scripture, the rest of our lives are about how God is making all things new, how he has saved us, is resolving this conflict, and one day it will be fully and finally resolved when Christ comes again and finishes making all things new. Conflict is a reality of life, isn't it? It's the reality of our lives with our spouses, with our families, with your children, with your parents, in the workplace, extended family, your neighbors. You ever had a bad neighbor you're constantly in conflict with? Our our drug dealing neighbors in Montgomery, there was always conflict with them. Um, But also conflicts in a church too. Anytime we get more than one person together, actually when even just one person shows up, in any place, at any time, whether in a family, church, workplace, neighborhood, we bring our sin. And so there's always going to be some sort of conflict. The question is, how do we deal with it? Do we deal with it in a godly way or an ungodly way? If it's going to be there in our families, workplaces, neighborhoods, church, then perhaps we ought to spend some time thinking about how we ought to handle such conflict. The Philippian church was dealing with um, a trifecta of problems, a threefold problem that was um, causing conflict in many ways. The first, they are facing persecution from both Jews and Gentiles alike, and certainly this would have caused conflict in their midst even knowing and judging how to handle those things. They were facing the conflict that came because of the false teachers, some of whom were saying that you had to obey the law of God in order to be saved, and the others were saying it didn't matter what you did, and the law of God no longer had any bearing on your life. But this morning, we see a third source of conflict, and that's internal conflict within the church. We'll see in our time together that um, much of what defines conflict is not so much that it exists, but more so how we handle it. And when we handle it in a godly way, God uses it for his glory and for the building of his church rather than the destruction of it. Um, You know, in reality, we're just not all that good often at dealing with conflict, are we? Depending on your personality, sometimes it's uh, people really enjoy conflict and others really seek to run away from it. I think of my own life in ways that I have not handled conflict well. The six months I didn't speak with my best friend in 11th grade, 11th grade, uh, not elementary school. I was a believer and he wasn't. For six months we didn't talk. In a small school, that's pretty tough to do. In the midst of all this conflict, Paul begins his um, exhortation in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, 
my beloved. Paul loves the Philippian church. Indeed, his language that he uses for the Philippian church is is rather unparalleled in the rest of Scripture. He loves other churches as well and tells them so. But he just goes overboard, over and over again, telling the Philippian church how much he loves them. They're a healthy church, a giving church, a sending church, a thriving church, but they aren't free of woes. No church is. You know, what's the old line? If you find the perfect church, leave, because you'll mess it up. Um, You know, what's the answer to dealing with all these uh, issues they were dealing with? Internal conflict, uh, persecution, false teachers, it's to stand firm. The, the city of Philippi was um, founded by retired Roman soldiers. Uh, it was refounded at some point before it, this letter was written. And, and so they would have immediately understood when Paul says stand firm. It's a military term. And it means to persevere, to be steadfast. It's what you do when the the enemy has surrounded you or they're trying to take the high ground. What do you do? Do you cut and run? No, you stand firm. You know, there are three really known reactions to conflict. Certainly we might fight. Sometimes it's appropriate to fight. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes we flee. Sometimes we freeze. But here Paul tells us there's a fourth option, that's to stand firm. Stand firm, not in yourself, not in your own strength, not in your own wisdom, but you stand firm in the Lord, remain steadfast. So Paul tells them to remain steadfast, to remain, uh, to, to stand firm in the Lord, whatever they deal with, especially as they deal with these three sources of conflict. So let's turn our attention this morning now to this internal conflict that was causing a great deal of of harm to the Philippian church. It apparently had been going on for some time. You know, it would be nice sometimes, it would be nice, wouldn't it, if we were perfectly sanctified? If our personalities didn't often clash, if if we didn't deal with family members who were difficult, then years down the line we look back and realize that we were the ones being difficult. Um the reality is that if you find yourself in a church or family or situation where there's no sin or no personality conflict, then you'd find yourself dead and in heaven because it doesn't exist this side of the Jordan. Verses two and three, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. We don't know much about this conflict, but we do know it's between these two godly women, Iodia and Syntyche. They were at odds with each other, and it was serious enough that Paul had heard about it all the way in prison in Rome. It's likely that he heard about it from Epaphroditus, who had brought uh, to Paul material provision and was there to help him. Um, But given the emphasis earlier in this book about unity in the church, we can imagine that this conflict had caused great division in their church. It's probably not an issue of immoral behavior or theological um, arguments or heresy because Paul throughout his letters, when those are at stake, he will address it very clearly. It seems like they have had some sort of disagreement and it's grown into factions. You know, factions are unhelpful in any family, workplace, but especially the church. 
I think of my own family when, you know, when factions are drawn and the leader of said faction is, is making people choose sides, it just gets ugly fast, doesn't it? And it seems as though that's what's going on here. Lines of communication are broken down. People stop talking to each other. Indeed, I've known families where um, people hadn't talked to each other for decades. We don't know what the argument was about, but Paul entreats both of these women, begs, beseeches, urges, exhorts to agree in the Lord, meaning based on their relationship with the Lord Jesus, to come to some sort of resolution be reconciled. They are fellow workers with Christ. Nowhere in this text is their salvation at risk or at stake. He says that they are, their names are written in the book of life along with Clement and the other fellow workers alongside Paul had worked. These were ladies who were close to Paul and had labored alongside with him, were important to his ministry there in Philippi. But even godly saints get twisted up sometimes and get things wrong. And he calls them to be reconciled as they look to the Lord for strength and direction. But not all conflict is destructive. Not all conflict is ungodly. Um, you know, oftentimes we make conflict to be a, a zero-sum game. Remember that old saying, uh, surely you didn't do this. But when you were a kid and you would do heads or tails, you say, heads I win, tails you lose. You know, it's a great little way to make sure you win and someone else loses. Heads I win, tails you lose. So oftentimes we see conflict like that, that someone has to win and someone has to lose. But conflict can be constructive. Conflict can be good. Acts 15, we find that Paul and Barnabas differed in opinion over whether John Mark ought to accompany them on their second missionary journey. Nowhere in that text do we see uh, the writer Luke um, speaking ill of one opinion of the other. They both had good ideas. Paul said, no, John Mark should not accompany us because he had left us. He had abandoned us on our first missionary journey, not even halfway through. And Barnabas said, he should go with us. He should go with us. Maybe he knew John Mark better. We don't know. But do you know Barnabas and Paul, they split ways at this point, amicably. They loved each other and they, they went and ministered in different directions. So this was conflict. It wasn't necessarily ungodly conflict, but just a matter of different of opinions. But the question is, how do we handle it? Sometimes conflict is necessary. Um, think about our old denomination, the Presbyterian Church, United States of America, the PCUSA. We used to be part of this denomination, but in 91 we pulled out because it had become increasingly, increasingly liberal to the point where the word of God was no longer upheld as the word of God. We felt that we had to go. Now, you better believe that caused conflict, right? Maybe a low level within the congregation, I don't know, I wasn't here, but, but when you think about the PCUSA Presbyterian part of, of which we were part, you better believe it, it caused conflict there. But it was the right conflict. It was a conflict standing firm based on what is right. Or discipline with our children. Have you ever noticed it's really easy to watch football games with your children in the room? Oh, wait, that's not true. Um, It's really quite tough, isn't it? And it would be very easy when you're watching your football game of choice to, uh, to just let them do whatever they want, right? Because it would keep it from being a moment of conflict when you're trying to watch your game. 
But you know, you have to bring conflict to bear. You have to discipline them when they're going crazy because down the road, it'll pay off in spades. And indeed, Scripture tells us if we don't, we don't love our children. So not all conflict is bad. And we shouldn't go into it with the idea that all conflict is bad. Uh, Certainly constructive criticism is technically conflict, right? But when it's taken well and taken out and given as it was meant to be, it builds up rather than tears down. But on the other hand, there are many sources of unhelpful and ungodly conflict. And as we search our hearts, this is where we tend to go, don't we? We think about Paul's exhortation that in your, in your anger, do not sin. So, you know, it's rare that we know anger without sin. There are many different roots of unhelpful conflict, ungodly conflict, and the first we see is the work of the flesh, Galatians 5, 19 through 20. You know, it turns out we're sinful, and sinners do bad things. And when sinners do bad things, especially in community, there's a great um, uh, impact. Think about this, that, you know, sin and sinful conflict the impact that the fall had on this world. Before the fall, we had a perfect fellowship with God, perfect fellowship with each other, and perfect fellowship with this world. Where there had been peace, now there's enmity, now there's strife, now there's tension, now there's conflict. Now the works of flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Oftentimes in the midst of conflict in families, neighborhoods, churches, workplace, wherever it is, there, there are two things potentially not always going on. One is that it's just over outright sin. We see that with discipline with our children. That when it's just outright sin, they've brought conflict to the table because they have fled from the Lord and are doing something that is forbidden by his word. But sometimes, even when it doesn't appear that that's the case, you know, when we are in sin, it hurts our relationship with the Lord. It doesn't remove our relationship with the Lord, but it does hurt it. And our, our relationship with the Lord directly impacts our relationship with others. And so if we're in unrepentant sin, if we're in secret sin, we better know for sure that it's going to impact our community. It's like a cancer in the body. You may not know it's there, but it's going to impact every part of your body. So the first source of, um, of, of unhelpful conflict, of sinful conflict, is, is the work of the flesh. And, and very close behind it in any sinful conflict is pride. Is Pride. Our pride drives us to seek to control things of which we're not to be in control of, to never trust others to do what we see we can do alone. The old saying from Dr. Huff next door, he's the interim at the First Baptist, he says, you know, it's not the color of the carpet that divides the church, it's who controls the color of the carpet. You know, and we just know innately that's true. Our pride makes, it, makes us narcissistic. That is that all our actions and all your actions, by the way, too, are about me, that all our thoughts are driven by self-interest and obsession of ourselves. We all struggle with this, don't we? We would lie if we said we didn't. When every problem and success, every slight and every sin, every comment and every action, every program and every new idea ultimately must include us and our opinion 
or we must receive recognition for it. This is narcissism. Where our pride makes us judgmental. You know, the problem with the Pharisees was that their whole system of religion depended on them being seen as better than other people. The system of salvation by relativism can destroy a family, any organization. And it leads to the sin of gossip and slander because it makes us feel good about ourselves. Let's be honest, gossip's fun. We don't do it because it's not. But it'll destroy a family, neighborhood, workplace, church in a heartbeat. But you know, as if that weren't enough, we have spiritual warfare to contend with. You know, if you're a believer here, God, uh, if you're a believer here and God has saved you and has made you his own, then the evil one hates you and your family and your church. And he's going to do whatever he can to spoil it for you. He has crosshairs on your back. He isn't like a pit bull who will attack indiscriminately. He's like a general taking assessment of his real enemies and when he should strike. All that to say is how are we supposed to deal with conflict? How are we meant to deal with conflict when it comes? Because it will. There's so many bad ways. I've seen them all in my extended family. You know, there was a turkey platter incident in my family um, that was stolen early in, um, oh, about 30 years ago, I would say. A turkey was brought to Thanksgiving dinner on it, and it was actually left. And, you know, it stayed at that house and was never returned And it caused a great deal of consternation in my family. All over a turkey platter. And do you know what? When I got married, do you know what this family who stole said turkey platter gave me? A new turkey platter. (laughs) It wasn't the real one. There are a lot of bad ways to deal with conflict. There are a lot of really good ways too. The Bible's really clear on this. It says a lot about conflict. And, And the first, as we look at our Savior Jesus, we have to realize first and foremost that we have been the recipients of godly conflict resolution. We were not at peace with God before our salvation. When Adam and Eve sinned, they threw this world upside down and opposed to the Lord in rebellion against him. And something had to happen in order for us, we who are his enemies, to be reconciled to him. And it was not because of anything we could have done. The Father sent his Son, a Redeemer, our Savior, to reconcile us to himself that we might be at peace with God. So when we are in the midst of conflict, when we're in the midst of whether to forgive somebody or not, if we call to, remind, call to our minds how much God has forgiven us and how we've been the recipients of, of, of godly reconciliation based on the humility of Christ at the cross, based upon his, his, his shedding forth his love and his mercy and his grace, and how he did not demand a pound of flesh other than his own for our forgiveness. We see then how Paul is going to bring up these two categories in this conflict resolution. He calls them to look to their unity, they're united together in the Lord, and their love. See, Paul entreats Yodia and Syntyche to agree In the Lord, both individually and together, they are siblings in Christ. They are sisters in Christ. They have unity together. They have been united together, together in Christ and one to each other. That's what we experience when we come to the Lord's table. 
We are fed spiritually by faith in our Savior and are grown in His grace. And we do it not alone, never alone, but together one with another because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, in the day when my brother and I fight and argue, even when we were kids, we always made up why? Because we were brothers and sisters. Or brothers, rather. <laughs> and we are brothers in the Lord, too. But also, love. You know, love really is a litmus test. Paul loves these Philippian women. And he entreats him individually, please, Iodia, please, Syntyche, agree in the Lord Y'all are my beloved. Really, love is a litmus test when we deal with conflict, isn't it? Are we coming to the situation out of love for each other and love for the Lord? What would our conflicts look like if we followed 1 Corinthians 13? It tells us love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Well, Paul's going to go on in this passage to say that he calls upon a true companion. In the Greek, it's pretty clear this is a, a person. This is his title. This is his proper name. This yoke fellow, literally, to sit down with these folks and to help them, help Iodian, help Sinai, to come to, to some sort of um, agreement together, to bury the hatchet, as it were. You know, mediation is a very helpful thing, Right? having someone else come in and sit down with two parties. And, it, and one of the things it does, it just basically increases communication. So many of our conflicts, so many of our arguments are a matter of communication and miscommunication of what is said and what is not said. Matthew 18 tells us about the three steps of conflict resolution where we first go to a person one-on-one. If it's the opposite sex, that's not an appropriate thing most of the time, but but we go one-on-one to tell them how they've sinned against us. And then after a time or two of doing that, then we go and we take somebody else. Usually the way we deal with conflict is what? We tell not one person, but ten people. You know the best way to keep a um, secret in a church? is just tell one person at a time. You know, and you just tell one person at a time, one person at a time, and then finally everybody knows after a while. And then finally, that third step, if that does not resolve the issue, then you get the church involved. The 1 Corinthians 6, 7 tells us that we ought to rather suffer wrong and be defrauded than to always insist on our rights. We don't really, I don't don't do that very well. Pride keeps me from doing that. Would I not rather be defrauded? Would I not rather be maligned? What would happen if we were willing to be persecuted and slandered and gossiped about and defrauded and wronged and slighted? As we think about Christ, this is what he did for us. We who had wronged him as he died for us, what did he do? He allowed himself to be defrauded. He allowed himself to be wronged so that we might have life. Well, certainly we've just touched the iceberg of conflict and conflict resolution this morning, but you know, conflict really tells us a lot about who we are inside, and we see oftentimes how much further we need to go in sanctification and walk with the Lord. The only thing that will ultimately change what's inside of us is walking with the Lord daily. You know, Iodia and Syntyche, Clement, and these others, were, their names were written in the book of life because they love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Because it's only He who can change us and to give us a new heart and help us in these things. 
So we say, come Lord Jesus and change us quickly. Amen. Lord, we thank you that um, you have reconciled us to yourself, that you have made us yours, and that we are righteous because of the um, life, death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. Help us, Lord, to live with one another in our families, workplaces, neighborhoods, and in this church. Father, with love and kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness because of all that we have received in Christ Jesus. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.